explain something to you. I had another lesson written. I had something completely written different. I was going to teach you today, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I had it all written and studied and programmed. I had it all done. I sent it to the church on Tuesday so that they could make the copies every week. We have to get the, the, our lessons in so the church can copy them and get everything ready for it. I had it all done. And I was ready to move on with other things that I have to do. Uh, and then I spoke to my son, who you know is a, on staff at Fort Lauderdale First Baptist, and he's an associate pastor there. And he told me that he had met with a couple, uh, an older couple, uh, and was counseling them. And it turned out that this woman, although she was a Christian, had been suffering from guilt and remorse over things that had taken place in her life. And she then suffered from depression, and it had weighed her down, and it, and it interfered with, with her Christian walk. And when I got off the phone with him, I started to pray and reflect on it and pray and pray and pray. And it was as if God was saying, you must write a lesson on this topic. There are people in this church, there are people in your class who have never forgiven themselves. Never forgiven themselves. Yes, they're Christians. Yes, God has forgiven them. Yes, Jesus and the Lord sees them through the lens of Jesus Christ, and they're forgiven. And yes, they're walking in a sanctified fashion, as we've learned that lesson, where every day of their life, as they commit sins, they go back to the Lord Jesus and ask for forgiveness. Yes, but still, they have not forgiven themselves. And I know that there are people here that are suffering like this. And I know it from this morning's class, so for some reason, God has put this on my heart to speak on this issue. I don't know who you are. I don't know what it's about. But I do know that there are people here who have not forgiven themselves. And so this lesson, what we're going to talk about today, is it's time to forgive yourself. That God wants you to forgive yourself. And so we all know theologically that when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that God forgives all of our sins. We understand that. We know that. Some of us just know it intellectually, but we haven't really grasped it in our heart. When, you're, when you accept Jesus Christ, God wipes the slate clean. I don't care what it is that you did. It's gone as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. He has done that. And then as we engage in the ongoing act of sanctification every day of our life when we get up and we commit the various sins that we're going to commit and we put it before God and we ask for forgiveness, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus takes place and he forgives us. It's ongoing. And so what happens then, what happens to us, those of us who have done this, who have accepted Jesus, who have been forgiven, we're born again, we walk daily with Jesus, and yet we have these sins, these 800-pound gorillas in our life, in the back, that we can't let go. They weigh us down. Oh, I can never let go of that. Oh, it's just, oh it drags me down. And so what happens is Christians find themselves, despite being saved and sanctified, find themselves with deep feelings of depression and not having a successful Christian walk. Uh, and it is as if they believe that some sins 
are so significant that it cannot be forgiven. Some personal sin that you have that God, for some reason, has not wiped out. And the burden of guilt and remorse weighs them down every single day and destroys destroys the chance for a meaningful Christian walk. Because here's the thing, God expects you to be a mirror of Jesus Christ. And when you walk into the world, the most important ministry that you have is your life. And people look at you and they want to see the love of Jesus and the peace and the radiance of Jesus in your life. And here's what it is that they see when you're dragging around remorse and grief for sins that you've committed. I can barely walk. I can barely walk. That's what they see. That's what it's like. That's what your life is like when you give in. And you don't understand that God has wiped the slate clean. And so effectively what we are saying is that for us, and this, I know this may be harsh, but this is effectively what you're saying, that for us, Christ's death on the cross was not quite enough for that particular sin that we're holding on to, that, that grief and that remorse that we have. And what I want to say to you is that is wrong on two counts. First of all, it is wrong because you are not being humble. That is not an act of humility. It is not an act of humility, and it is not proper theology. What we're saying when we're saying that is that Jesus' death on the cross didn't forgive all our sins. And I want to tell you that you couldn't be more wrong Turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 2. Verse 21. This is Peter speaking on the day of Pentecost. There are thousands of people now watching as the church of Jesus Christ is being born. And they're hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ preached in a hundred different languages in their own native tongues. And they can't believe what they're hearing. And Peter now stands up amongst thousands of people and says the following to the crowd from all over the world. Verse 21, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Underline it. Everyone. Circle it. No exclusions. No amendments, no exceptions. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so in reality, as you understand this, your sins, my sins, are no different than the rest of humanity's. There is no sin that you committed that God wouldn't clear and clean up. He's done that for you. He's done that. And the problem is that I believe, for most of us, we do not understand grace. That's what it's about. Oh, but I don't deserve it. Oh, it's so, I did so many terrible things. Yes, I'm a Christian now, but I, oh, I can't, when I reflect back on my life, I'm tormented. Look, you have to stop thinking like that. That's not a good Christian walk. And we're going to talk about that, how God wants you to go through these issues 
where you've had things in your life, where you had things in your past, and what God expects you to do with them. But you, we, do not understand how great is grace. Some theologians said it's as if you have to understand that in heaven there is this vast ocean of grace brought to us by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Grace, and there's as if there's a pipeline from that ocean to us. That whenever we call on it, whatever we need, however much it is, it doesn't matter how many times that the pipeline is opened, and it flows, and it flows, and it flows. And this is how we have to understand what our Christian walk is about. This is a critical thing. And so it's as if, for some of us, that some Christians believe that they must punish themselves for their sins in order to be truly forgiven. In other words, yes, I understand I'm forgiven. Yes, I understand Jesus died for my sins. Yes, I'm fully sanctified. I understand it, but I still believe I got, I have, there's a punishment for me. I have to be punished. I need to be penanced. I need to do penance. You know, it reminded me of Martin Luther as he was caught up in these issues, as he was bringing forth the, the Reformation. And as he was trying to reconcile him, his faith with the Catholic Church, he decided at one time to make a pilgrimage from Germany to Rome, and he did it effectively on his knees. He got there on his knees, determining that every so many feet he would get down on his knees and pray, travel so many feet and get down. He did this all the way from Germany to the Vatican because he believed he needed to make penance. And you understand that with Martin Luther when you studied him, that he would go to confession, he'd walk out of confession, it'd be one minute, he'd walk back into confession. This is what went on. He went out, and then he came out, he'd be out for a minute or two, and then he went back in. And you have to understand, look, we have to have, understand the grace of Jesus Christ, what this is about. And when we don't do this, we burden ourselves, we wreck the chance that we have to have a triumphant Christian life. So we do not have to do penance. There's no theology that says we have to do penance. The penance for you was done on the cross. Amen? Amen. Let's get that straight. And so you don't add, and here's what you're saying when you're saying that. You see, you're getting back to works. Oh, I know I'm saved, but I have to do something myself. I have to add something to the salvation experience. Yes, I have to do penance. It's like you're saying, you have to do works. Folks, how many times are you going to hear me say, works are meaningless for salvation? Meaningless. Your works don't add a thumbtack to your salvation. All right? And so, but what is the difference? But... When we're saved, God does expect us to make restitution. All right? Now, all of us here have had experience prior to being saved. We've all made some dubious choices in our lives. Some of us have had bad marriages. We've made bad choices in terms of, of marriages, some uh, relationships. Some of us business uh, determinations, some of those decisions even involving our children. There's a myriad number of things that all of us, all of us, none of us ex is exempted from this. And so the question, however, becomes now you're saved, now you're forgiven, 
Now you're sanctified. You've got a sanctified walk in which you're, you're praying daily to Jesus. You are forgiving those who have trespassed against you. And now it's time to forgive yourself. And so God doesn't expect penance. What God says is make restitution. Go back to those who you've offended. Go back to those who you've defrauded. Go back to those who you've slandered and gossiped. What's appropriate is restitution, not continuing self-flagellation. Self-flagellation is not what it's about. An unforgiving spirit towards yourself is not what it's about. Turn with me, rather, to Luke 19. Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Tax collector were despised human beings. And the reason for that was not that they were just collecting taxes, which you could understand that being a reason for being despised. But when you were a tax collector, you effectively got this franchise from Rome. Rome gave you the franchise. And what effectively it meant was that you could steal. You had to give Rome their due, and then you were entitled to keep whatever extra you could get. So anybody who was a tax collector was known as a thief. Um, And Zacchaeus, because he did such a good job, was the chief tax collector. So not only was he stealing from people, he was also getting a cut from the other tax collectors. So now I want to set the picture up for you about a despicable human being who sinned and defrauded all the time. You got it? Chapter 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your home today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Can you imagine Jesus spending time with a sinner? Can you imagine There are sinners going to church. Can you imagine? Yes, and the crowd murmurs. Isn't it amazing? And the crowd murmurs. Verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Let's understand what took place here. You don't see it, but between verse 7 and verse 8, Zacchaeus has become born again. The Bible doesn't tell us the machinations, the words, the heart. We don't see it, but it's there. You have to read the words and understand through the Holy Spirit that what's going on. Here he is, this cheater, this defrauder, this person who was stealing left and right in the chief tax collector in that area so that everybody knew him, what kind of a person he was. And here, between verse 7 and 8, 
He is now saved, and look how he makes restitution. This is the point. This is what God wants. He doesn't want you to wallow in despair and remorse. He wants you to do what's right and move on. So look at what Zacchaeus does. I give half of my possessions to the poor. Zacchaeus, half to the poor today, right now. And if I've cheated anybody, I will give anybody that I've cheated four times what I've stolen. Zacchaeus, is there anything left over? Is there anything left? That's the, that's the impression I get. I mean, really, it's as if that's it. I've given it all away. I'll start over new. That's what God wants to see. That's restitution. Cleaning up the mess in your lives. And so what does that mean? That means this. That if somebody, you have said something or done something to somebody that's wrong, you make it right. If you've defrauded somebody, you make it right. If you have a relationship that's broken, you pick up the phone and try to make it right. Look, am I saying you're going to fix it? Not necessarily. But when you speak to somebody and say, I want you to know something. I'm a Christian. God has put this on my heart. I need to tell you, I love you. Please forgive me for what I've done. I should not have done it. And I love you. I want to have a relationship with you. That's what you have to do. You know what these things are in your life. These 800-pound gorillas that are hanging there and dragging you down and pulling you down. Well, now here's exactly what Jesus says. And you see, you see this example with Zacchaeus. And it's so powerful. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Now you see the essence of salvation. And so this is the point I'm trying to teach you today about understanding, about forgiving yourself. That is, once you have come to the Lord Jesus, once you've accepted the Lord, and you're living a sanctified life, and you're forgiving others, you're forgiving others as you're asking God to forgive yourself, now it's time for you to forgive yourself. This is what we need to understand, understand the great love of God. And so what we need to know is that the forgiveness of the Lord is much more significant and powerful than the forgiveness of yourselves. Who are we? Oh, I can't forgive myself. Well, God forgave you. I know, but you don't know the things that I did. But God knows. Yeah, but there's a pain that I've got. I know there's a pain, but it's time to move on. It's time to pick up and move on. Instead of weighed down by what went on in the past, about those issues in your life that are past. Now, let's understand something. Some of us, some of us may be suffering the after effects of our sin. This does not mean that God has not forgiven you. We cannot, for, we cannot for confuse the natural consequences of human acts with the judgment of God. And let me explain to you what I mean. If you were a drug addict before you came to the Lord and for years you abused your body and then you sought God and asked God to save you and God saved you and forgave you and took you out of drug addiction, the very likely possibility is that your body has been wrecked because you were a drug addict. Is that a judgment on you from God? No. That's a judgment on you 
because of your stupidity and, and making a bad choice. There are consequences. This is repeated in every possible human realm. If you make bad choices in terms of spouses and those kind of issues, you have to come to terms with living with those choices. It may be painful. You may have to see people that it's difficult to see. If, you, if relationships with your children have deteriorated because of bad choices of how you've handled situations, even though you're a Christian, all right, some of these things continue to linger. That's not a judgment of God. That's not God whipping you. This is the natural reaction to what happens in our human walk. And so you have to separate these things out. God's not punishing you. You're not sitting there being, going through uh, self-flagellation on these issues. This is a consequence of our acts. There are consequences to our acts. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes there is scar tissue. But the diff there's a big difference between scar tissue and an ongoing weeping wound. And for those of us who have not forgiven us, it's as if we have this huge wound that continues to weep and is open and is sitting there dragging us down and not allowing us to have a triumphant Christian life. Now, we still have the remaining issue of human guilt. That's a big meatball. Guilt. But let's understand something. We need to understand guilt from the perspective of God. God has designed you to feel guilty when you commit a sin. It's called a conscience. That's what it is. He's wired you that way. He's wired you that way even before you were saved. He gave you a conscience even before you were saved. Because even people who do not know God, when they do terrible things, most of them have some remorse. They get over it. They get over it. But what happens to us as Christians when God wires us this way? It is that guilt from the remorse that we have for committing a sin that causes us to reach out and repent to God of what we have done. This is exactly what's gone on in the first beatitude. When, when uh, Jesus said, blessed are those that mourn, they shall inherit the kingdom of God. That's what mourning is. Mourning is repentance. Looking at myself, looking within, seeing the sin, seeing where my walk is, and recognize I'm doomed. I'm doomed. God, I can't help myself. Forgive me. That's what repentance is. And that is mourning. And that is a guilty conscience that God has wired you. But there are two different kinds of guilt. There's godly guilt and worldly guilt. And from God's perspective, they're entirely different. And in fact, what it means, there's godly sorrow and worldly sorrow coming from two different perspectives. The sorrow that comes that is according to the will of God produces repentance. Turn with me, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 7. This is Paul, the apostle, who is writing this letter. I ask you to remember what kind of life Paul had 
before he was a Christian. He was the persecutor of the church. I'm convinced that he, he was involved in putting a lot of people to death. Families were broken up. Families were broken up. You know, around the time, right after Stephen, the church was under terrible persecution when Stephen was murdered. Murdered. And Paul was there involved in that act and, and, and consenting to it, the Bible tells us. We know also that after that, he went all over Jerusalem and went after families. I'm sure that there were families that were broken up by Paul. I'm sure that years later, when he went to these meetings, he would see some of these families. He would see some of these families. He'd see the widows, recognizing that he was involved. Just think of what that had to be like. All right? And you're worried about your little sin? Here's the guy who writes the New Testament. Two-thirds of the New Testament. The greatest evangelist in the history of the world. He's going to meetings where he's looking at people and he sees broken homes, recognizing, oh, wow, I was involved in that. Now look at what he says. Look at what he says in verse 7. Excuse me, verse 10. What did I say? I'm losing my mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, right? Yep. Verse 10. Thank you. Verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Leaves no regret. Circle that in your Bible. Leaves no regret. You understand? This is the guy who was on the road to Damascus who met Jesus face to face, who saw his life flash in front of him. Yes, he knows what he did. Yes, he was involved in the death of Stephen. Yes, he persecuted the Christian families. Yes, he broke them up and sent them all through the world. But look at what he says. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. No regret. Because God wiped the slate clean. Because he couldn't get up. You think he could get up and preach? If that's what he saw... If all he saw is sin, do you think he could get up and speak? All he would do is take one step up. Do you think I could get up here and speak to you if all I saw were the sins that I committed in my life? Please. It's hard enough to get up as it is now. Really. Honestly. I mean, honestly. And I think that this is slowing a lot of you down. I'm convinced a lot of you would have greater ministries in your life. But here's what you think. You know, I'd like to do that, but oh, wow, my past. Oh, Oh, gosh, oh, I did this, I did that, I said this, I said that. Oh, I can't get, I can't do that. That's what's going through your minds. And here's Paul. No regret, no regret. Continue that sentence. But worldly sorrow brings death. Worldly sorrow brings death. What does that mean? Let's go to the jails. Let's make a visit to the jails. Here's what you're going to find. It's all filled with regret. Oh, I'm so sorry. I got caught. <laughs> oh, why did I do that? I could have used more brains on that. Oh, what a dumb thing I did. Next time I'll do it better. You understand? That's worldly sorrow. 
That's what the world does. Oh, I made a mistake, but you know, if I think about it, I can correct it. I can use my mind. I'll find a better way around. There's no repentance. Thankfully, there are people in jail that are repenting and giving their heart to God. But you understand the difference between worldly sorrow? Oh, oh, that was awful. Next time, I'll be careful with the words I use. Instead of saying worldly, instead of having godly sorrow that convicts your heart, that puts you on your knees and asks you to ask God to come into your life and repent. And then you can be like St. Paul and said that kind of sorrow that leads to repent, repentance has no regret. Can you imagine that? Can you honestly imagine what that's like? When I think of Paul, I mean, he's the guy who I really, I, I just, I, I have such admiration for him. That with, with, regardless of what he did in his life, how God wiped the slate clean and went on to write the New Testament. And if you talk to most historians and they list the five most powerful and influential people in the last 2,000 years in Western civilization, most knowledgeable historians will, will put Paul in that list. Can you imagine? Paul, our Paul, our Paul, the saved Paul, in the list by secular historians, because they recognize this. You know, so if just think about if he had continued to reflect on the death and the carnage and the persecution, do you think he could do what he did? No. But you're different? You're different. Well, Brother John, I'm in a different situation. You don't know. I've had some tough times. I've said things. I have, look, look, God's forgiven you. Now forgive yourself. Make restitution. Go back. Fix what was broken. Make the attempt. If you can't fix it, try to fix it. If people reject you, then that's on them. But make the attempt. Make the restitution. Reach out. Show them that you are a changed person. Do what you can. If they then say they don't want any part of you, then that's between them and God. But between you and God, your conscience is clear. You have no regret like Paul. Turn with me to... 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Again, Paul. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. All right? How's that? You want to put that on your refrigerator? You feeling better? You feeling better? Here's the guy who writes the New Testament. He writes the New Testament. He meets Jesus face to face. Now he's telling you, what Jesus did for him, he wasn't so bad. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. He left off murderer. All right? Murderer. Conspirator of murder. All right? Let's call him a conspirator of murder. He didn't actually pick up the tool and do it himself, but he conspired with others that resulted in that and broke up families. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief before he was saved ignorantly before he was saved. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along 
with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You understand exactly what's going on. The grace of Jesus Christ forgave him. That's why he said, I don't have any regrets now as a Christian. Here is a trustworthy saving that deserves full acceptance. This is verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Underline that. The worst. Can you imagine? The guy who writes the New Testament? The guy who takes the church of Jesus Christ and spreads it over the north, the entire known world at that time? He says, I'm the worst sinner of all. And yet Jesus raises him up and uses him and forgave him and wiped the slate clean and removed everything from the past. And you still sit there holding on to that pain and remorse and that grief of what that sin was in your life. You understand God's speaking to you today. God's speaking to you today. Give it up. Give it up. Accept the grace of Jesus Christ. Let him pour it into your life. Take that ocean of grace and say, God, wash me in that grace. Pour it into me. Get all this garbage out of my life that I've held on to. Let me accept salvation as you've given it to me. Let me do that. Verse 16, but for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. You're a living blackboard that you walk around. Forget your speaking about your faith. You don't have to say a word. You don't have to hand out tracts. Your life, people are watching how you live how you handle adversity, how you handle pain, how you handle persecution. They're looking at you. Are you radiating the love of Jesus? Are you radiating this? And when they speak to you, do they see peace? Do they see love? Do they see people who know where they're going and are at peace? Or do they see somebody who instead is not at peace? Do they see someone who's layered down? You understand the difference? You understand what Paul is saying here, how critical it is? So we have to understand how important this is, how this issue is so critical to your Christian walk. I'm sorry, I don't think we hear this preached much in churches. Really, all right? I'm sorry. And I don't really understand why. I don't understand why. Yes, yes, we focus on asking God to forgive us about turning our hearts over. And yes, having a sanctified walk. But so many of us never, ever forgive ourselves. And now Jesus is telling you today, move on from this day forward. And I want to give you two examples, two examples of the Bible in which we can see the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow and what the difference is. The first example is Judas. Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He sells him out. Turn with me to Matthew 27. Verse 3, Matthew 27, verse 3. Jesus has, uh, Judas has betrayed Jesus, and now he realizes that Jesus is condemned. 
And so look at the reaction of Judas in verse 3. Matthew 27, verse 3. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. Underline it. Judas? Remorse? Yes. Worldly remorse. Worldly sorrow. Seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I don't want the money. I'm sorry I took the money. Take the money back. <laughs> chief priests didn't want the money back. Think about that. I have sinned. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Yes, you have, Judas. Yes, you have. You betrayed God himself. What is this to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Then he went away and hanged himself. Did he come on his knees? Did he ask God to forgive him? Did he pour out to God and ask him, God, I know I've done a terrible thing, but I know, Lord, if I come even at the ninth, at the last moment, at the twelfth hour, if I ask you and come with a broken heart, I, will you forgive me, God, for what I have done? No. Worldly remorse says, I've made bad choices in my life, and now I'm going to kill myself. That's what worldly remorse is. But now take a look at the other example. Take a look at the example when, when instead of worldly sorrow, it's godly sorrow and what godly sorrow does. Turn in the same chapter, Matthew, excuse me, Matthew 26, look at verse 75. And let's understand what we're seeing here. This is Peter. Peter, who would go on to betray Jesus at Jesus' most needful hour, when Jesus is sitting there being held by the authorities, and Peter is confronted by the crowd, aren't you with him? You're one of those. No, absolutely not. No, no, I'm sure I saw you. You were there. No, no, I wasn't with him. I don't know him. And Jesus, who had told him before, that before the cock crows, you will deny me. All right, and then we look, we look at that verse in verse 75, and we see, we'll, we'll look uh, at verse 72. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, there standing there went up to Peter. Those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses. On himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Can you understand how sinful this is? Not only lying, but he's now blaspheming. He's calling down curses on himself. That's the most awful thing that you could imagine a godly man doing. Not only lying, but blaspheming and calling curses down upon himself to prove I'm not with this man. Immediately, immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. He went outside and wept bitterly. And then we know that the Bible doesn't tell us everything, but clearly he got on his knees and begged God to forgive him. Beg God to forgive him. We know we see the scenes during the resurrection, and we see even then how he's not there amongst the first people going into the tomb. Why? 
Because he's still carrying around this remorse that he didn't understand, that he was so sorrowful. But God gives him grace. God works on him. God forgives him. And what happens as he leads, as that, as that sanctification process begins and we give it up to God, we see now about 120 days later, right? About 120 days later, right there in Jerusalem, when the day of Pentecost takes place and the Holy Spirit comes down, comes down and anoints the entire church at that time. And now they're all speaking in native languages so that thousands of people there in the square hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached to them in their own native tongue. When that happens, Peter gets up and says to them, says, Jesus will save you. Give your heart to the Lord Jesus. He will save you. We read this verse when we started, when we started our lesson today. So what an unbelievable picture. You see the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. So Jesus is speaking to you. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you today. That those of you who are carrying around this issue, and for many of you, you've carried it around for decades. I'm telling you right now, make this the first day of the rest of your life. God has forgiven you. Now, forgive yourself. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the words that we've heard today. Lord, they've touched our heart. And Lord, I pray that those of us who are still laboring under this issue be touched today, that our hearts be anointed, that our spirit be touched, that we fully understand what took place on the cross, that we understand what grace is about and how this ocean of grace just sits there waiting to be poured over us. Lord, we could never thank you. We never thank you enough for what you've done for us. But Lord, help us to be the kind of Christians you want us to be to be the examples in the world so that we walk in the world. When the world looks at us, they say they must be with him. Lord, that's what my prayer is for these dear people. I ask that you protect them, be with them this week, and bring them back safely next week so that we can, we can continue the study of your word. We put it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you all.